Welcome back to the Bob Mentality Show. I'm Chris Lucian and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have Marette Puhoyevri and we are going to talk about uh, teaching an ensemble, exploratory testing and product development in practice. Um, so, but before we get started, maybe Marette, you could introduce yourself and, and uh, talk about why you're interested in ensembling, et cetera. So I've always been a bit of a social learner. I have my 25th uh, anniversary in IT industry this year. And uh, I've been uh, facilitating communities pretty much since I started in the, in the industry because it's the best way to learn from others. And uh, when I got the chance of inviting Woody Zuil to a conference and got introduced to this, I thought it was such a ridiculous idea that I had to try it. And I realized it's one of the best things that I could have ever done to, you know, really build on top of the whatever I had on, on learning socially. So I'm still on that journey and, and well, it continues. Great. And uh, so that, that leads very well into teaching in ensembles. So, uh, yeah, what experiences have you had there? Successes? Anything along those lines? So my regular work is that I'm a principal test engineer in Vaisala, which basically means I work in projects. And I do very little teaching. I kind of do pairing and ensembling as part of the work. But as my hobby on the side, I've been teaching a lot of people pretty much across the globe, kind of going to conferences and, and organizing different kinds of sessions. And this whole teaching stuff, it's, it's more on the hobby side for me than, rather than my work. And again, for me, I've been trying to teach, but you probably know this, that I'm kind of keen on testing. Testing is my thing. It's the number one thing that I, I really care for. And uh, it's hard to teach testing by just telling stories about testing that has happened at some point. You actually have to experience it. And I used to do that in, in pairs. And as a teacher, I always had this trouble that uh, you got lucky if you got a good pair. And if you didn't get a good pair, I had absolutely no control over what the people were taking out of the course that I was facilitating. Like I could mix up the pairs, of course, like do a bit of promiscuous pairing during that day, but it was still kind of lucky. And again, then there was always this kind of reintroducing and where did the previous pair leave off and, and a lot of that stuff. So when I found that I can use ensembling as a way of teaching, I've been really doing a lot better in ramping up people's skills, uh, especially in exploratory testing, which seems to be something that people really do not get how to do. Yeah, and uh, so that's really interesting. And also, I think that there's also this dynamic where two, two maybe student role people end up talking to each other about their understanding and correcting it. And you as a trainer, you don't need to re-explain something to somebody. They begin to explain it to each other. And, and, and so I've seen a lot of benefits like that for sure. Um, so so uh, exploratory testing um, in that, and actually, you know, I, I think just um, training that in general, uh, how, how are things introduced? How, uh, you know, maybe how does it go along? Have people been resistant to this style of, of, of teaching or, or has it been better for you? Um, so I've tried various framings on how to introduce this. 
I've tried creating kind of like um, the whole outline of the course already introduces that we're going to be learning in this, this style. And if people know it in advance, they generally run away. They're afraid of the description. They don't know what it is. It's unknown. And, and they just opt out. Like if the course is called ensemble exploratory testing or something like that, they won't join. But if it's just exploratory testing and we just happen to be mostly spending our time in an ensemble, it really doesn't matter at all in, mm -hmm. in, in that point. And again, you can always have these rules of kind of like, you know, if you don't want to be, you know, on the the uh, the driver's seat for, for now, you can opt out. You can say kind of like just pass and, and we're OK with that. Uh, if you don't know what to do, it's not your job to know you're here to learn. So there's always, it's always my responsibility in the end that they get the task done. And then kind of just framing it with uh, good examples of tasks, something that will uh, uh, stretch them in a way that kind of layers the learning. Uh, it's generally an enjoyable experience. That's at least how I've been finding it. Great. And is this like over multiple days or, or is it a single uh, day thing or? Uh, most of the things that I do are, uh, well, right now at, at my work, I've been running a Python for testing course. Mm -hmm. It's uh, four times half a day okay. because it's less exhausting that way when you can split it yeah. over multiple weeks. We've been doing it every second week. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's kind of like uh, you you practice something in a group, then you uh, get some home exercise or kind of like, you know, we ask you to either apply it in your work or do an exercise that we gave you. And then we continue again after two weeks. That's kind of nice because, well, we're all in the same company and we can build the schedules the way we like. Mm -hmm. But most of the time uh, it's either a full day because I'm an external trainer and I'm away from my regular work. Mm -hmm. So it's either a full day or at most, it's usually been two days when we've been spending time together. And then it's kind of like whether the exercises are, well, it might be that it's different systems that will reveal you different things about testing, or it might be that it's the same system and we're just, you know, for two days, we're digging in and growing our understanding. And those create completely different experiences, of course, but two days is kind of my max on, on training side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, <laughs> I, I, I like this idea of um, the exploratory uh, testing piece. And um, because I do think that, you know, in a lot of the extreme programming side of things, there's a lot of this kind of test up front and, and exploratory testing. I always find it's like, you know, we'll, we'll catch that super like esoteric stuff. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that probably unique to this episode is the discussion on exploratory testing in ensemble. Um, you know, maybe uh, can you describe anything that might be unique about that experience um, compared to maybe a uh, ensemble programming experience that people might have? I think uh, the main difference kind of comes from the fact that it's, it's really a, um, it's an act of discovery, like completely. It's about uh, just the learning and the software there. Uh, it's there to be your kind of like, I think of it as like a, an external imagination. So it's, it's there to, to pique your curiosity and drive you to certain directions and, and kind of ask you to listen to it and follow wherever it, it's taking you and, and ensuring that we create this understanding in the group uh, that 
that we didn't maybe have before. So again, like, of course we do this while we're programming as well, or we could be doing test automation in an ensemble. And then it's exactly the same as, as programming in, in general, but it's more on the side of kind of like when you're learning and you're taking these like small loops of, of how you are adding more information in a group and you're trying to keep the group in sync of what we're doing now so that it doesn't end up being kind of like a sample of some of your work and some, some of your work and then you know somebody else's work uh kind of creating these learning agendas well we call them charters usually in exploratory testing mm. uh that's i think what makes it a little bit different uh kind of like deciding what kind of things you're doing i usually use kind of techniques for example naming things that you see is, is really great technique and trying to put that into a mind map and then reorganizing that into some kind of a model and then pointing out that you do you notice that you have an empty space here in this model you haven't filled that out or that that you have found a lot of detail here uh, but maybe that there's still another layer that you can peel so the visual representation of the knowledge usually helps in in that but yeah it's uh generally it's just a little bit different in the sense that you have a lot more leeway on what you're doing and uh you're trying to still keep that learning in in some kind of a, a leash so that you don't end up in well doing too many things at once nice yeah the, we've uh We've traditionally uh, used in our ensembles Kanban and whiteboards, but uh, someone on the team suggested mind maps recently. So we used that for a while and that was a lot of fun and it worked really well. Um, and uh, one, one question I had was, uh, I suspect you were teaching exploratory testing before uh, you started ensembling. And if you did, how did you teach it then compared to now? Like what's, what's some of the big differences you've seen? I taught it before. Uh, well, at first I taught it by telling stories about how testing works in companies, wow. and that just doesn't work at all. Then I taught it in pairs, mm. and that creates the, the problem that if I'm actually the only one in the whole group who really knows how to do it, I can't model it for every one of the groups. I, I get to the level of best in the group rather than my level. And uh, with Ensemble, I can really say kind of like, hey, now let me navigate for a while. I'll show you how to do this. And then I can let me make them kind of do it uh, what I consider more of the right way. And then I can let them build things. And again, I've learned better ways of doing the thing, but I've needed to kind of baseline it on like, maybe you should try this one. And then people can do this kind of like, oh yeah, and we could do this and you know, we can add that. So it's more on the side of, of making sure, you know, kind of getting the best out of everyone, including the trainer. There's a reason why the trainer is the trainer, uh, generally because they're trying to teach something to the, the group. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And, and, that, and that's what I was gonna say as well is um, in, our, in our practice of ensembling, uh, so we'll be ensembling code, but a natural part of ensembling code is to do some exploratory testing as well. And that's what I love about having uh, someone like yourself or someone like-minded in the quality mindset will just be like, Oh, the test, the you know, the unit test pass, and that's great, but let's do some exploratory testing, right? And so what's what I've seen that's fantastic with that with uh, an ensemble is the knowledge of the group helps tremendously, right? Because someone is thinking about it from a database or persistence perspective, someone's thinking about it from a domain perspective, what a user would do, someone else thinking about it. So you come up with all these test cases that um, I think back to my days prior to pairing and ensembling that I would never thought of, right? Um, and so it, uh, it's, it's, you find some fantastic things that way that um, 
I, I don't think I could compare to anything else other than uh, maybe a meeting, like someone says something like, oh, let me go back to my desk and test that now, you know. <laughs> um, it's kind of this accidental learning by being really intentional about learning. Right, so you just right. kind of go in with the idea that you're learning and, and, and you don't know what you will learn. The whole mm -hmm. unknown unknowns is kind of the central concept in testing. We never know how things will end up working. And that's what we want to discover. Uh, there's one bit that I, by the way, wanted to mention is that we always keep talking about this kind of, uh, uh, we do TDD and we do uh, maybe some kind of test automation work. And then we do exploratory testing on top of that. That's not actually how I think of exploratory testing. Okay. I have this idea of contemporary exploratory testing with test automation and kind of like all of those, those more uh, short leash activities are uh, kind of, I frame them in this whole con concept of learning. So mm -hmm. I might do what I call kind of automationist gambit for exploratory testing. So I actually start by, by taking test automation. It might be unit level test automation, it might be API, or it might be user interface. But when I create the basic uh, scenarios uh, with automation while I'm exploring, I kind of choose that as one of my, my short leashes that I use while I'm exploring. Mm. Uh, it allows me to then build on top of that. And again, since it's an open-ended discovery of information, it doesn't really end uh, in the end of having done that. Uh, you can build on top of that, and it can be a really useful way of, of getting some testing done that you wouldn't get done otherwise. And this is something that I also nowadays teach to a lot of people, complete newbies to programming. And within a couple of hours in an ensemble format, they are actually programming for testing purposes, usually on the user interface level. And uh, that is still exploratory testing. It's not separate from exploratory testing, but it is exactly uh, that, that type of, of work. How does that work uh, maybe from like a implementation standpoint? Is it you're running a automated interface test all the way to a certain step and then doing something unexpected afterwards? Or what do you do to use it as a short leash, as you're saying? So usually uh, when I teach, the, the first thing that I start with is that I have a very simple web user interface based application. Mm -hmm. It has a field and, and a button and some outputs. Like really, really simple one, as, as simple as, as they come. And then what I guide people into is thinking about, so we had this one scenario you wrote here, uh, to be or not to be. Mm -hmm. and, and it counted how many be verbs you had on that, that sentence. So what else could you be writing here? Instead of writing it kind of, you know, manually, as in you write it on the user interface, you can use the automation, just mm -hmm. kind of give a list of all kinds of things to try and okay. then have different expected values. Mm -hmm. And then notice the things that, that the automation notices for you, kind of which is out of, of order for that application. And then notice the things that automation doesn't, for example, notice for you. So I usually, I demo then people to things like, well, you thought, you know, you did this, these 20, 30 test cases now, and you found these you know, multiple problems with your automation while you were exploring with mm -hmm. automation. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's still these problems you didn't find. For example, I introduced accidentally originally, I introduced a bug in that application that I have on the CSS side. I, instead of having Having, uh, the relational position, I have fixed position, which means it doesn't scroll. So if you create long text, automation script really sees the long text completely and all the counting of words and counting of to be verbs are, you know, all of that is fine. 
it seems as if it was working. But if you try touching the user interface, which you can all obviously also do, you can kind of run the automation script to a certain point and then continue, you will notice different things. Mm -hmm. And then you end up kind of like, you know, do I want to implement more on the algorithm side? You know, do I want to extend the automation to notice all of this? Or is it enough that I noticed it now and I have the baseline already in automation and maybe that's what I want to keep uh, for later. So I, I get to this kind of concept of some of the automation that we write is, is you know, single use. I throw it away. Mm -hmm. And some of it is, is stuff that we, you know, we will build on and maybe even, you know, clean it up so that we put it in the CI pipeline and, yeah. and it makes sense to, to keep around there. So, so the, the dry principle is preserved, kind of, you don't repeat yourself, you, you just expand on, on variations, uh, yeah. whether it be just the test variations or later adding new bits of code to try and touch the interface somewhere that it can, can't yeah. actually be reached or something. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and again, like parallelize that parallelizing this as well. Like you do repeat yourself. You actually want to repeat yourself when you're running things uh, on multiple different threads at the same time. Mm -hmm. But there's again, a new information that you're looking for, an idea that, that you want to kind of test for. And, and getting people to kind of think of like, what do we know and what we don't know? And how do we build on top of what we know? I think that's the challenge of exploratory testing. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And I think, I think that was a good point you made earlier. I think I did at a conference once one exploratory uh, testing, like training session, and it was purely manual testing. But I think you make it a great point that it doesn't have to be just manual. It's exploratory is more of a, the mindset you're going in when you're, you're testing. And please correct me if I'm wrong, because this is not my area of expertise. But um, that, and I love the, the description you have, the interplay between automation and manual, because uh, in, in my experience with ensembles, it does kind of go to that back and forth. Someone has an idea, it might start with the manual test, but if we do find something that immediately turns into some kind of automation to uh, cat, you know, kind of, uh, as Chris would say, vice test it, you know, wrap, you know, wrap that bug and uh, make sure we get a red test for that so we can fix it. Or the other way around, we're writing some automation and it makes us think of something oh well what about this case at the hardware level or the firmware level and then it might cause us to do some exploratory testing manually uh, and so i've definitely seen the interplay back and forth and that seems very healthy right because you want all the tools available to for whatever you need at that moment right um so th that's great and um just to get real specific just out of curiosity um what what kinds of automation tools do, do you typically start with with a group um you know, well, for, for test automation. In a, a training session, uh, when I first started experimenting with this, I used robot framework a lot. I had this idea that it looks very English-like and, and that makes it easy for people. And then I noticed that what happens if I do that is that people uh, leave the session uh, completely forgetting that they were learning exploratory testing or that they were learning testing in in general, and they're just excited about the new language and that they can write now some, some automation uh, in, a, in a language. That is, it's kind of like a box. It's, it's really good to begin with. It's really, you know, beginner friendly. But uh, also when you uh, start with that, uh, I feel like you get trapped in that box. Like you can't really get out of it anymore. So, so one of the things that I'm kind of noticing in the community in general is that in Finland, we have like a lot of people who are robot framework experts, which basically means they don't know how to test. They don't know how to automate. And I think they're out of job at some point. But uh, 
and the developers will be doing actually better job in both of those roles mm. because the automation takes so much of their effort so that they no longer test but they just automate but they're stuck on a language that no one else wants to use so mm. that's kind of my concern the boxes is, is, is very uh, rigid so uh, then i replaced it with just taking python and and pytest Mm-hmm. And I can take whatever tools I, I want and need on top of that. And more recently, I've been really looking at kind of like having a very basic Python tests uh, using Playwright, which is kind of one of the more friendly, easy APIs uh, on the, the uh, user interface side on top of that. And then using, uh, well, requests for uh, uh, driving REST APIs, uh, using uh, something for files, you know, like combining things and and layering kind of different libraries and and introducing the idea that, you know, even asserts, you can have, you know, asserts, you can have, uh, uh, well, soft asserts come from a different library, you can have uh, approval tests, they come again from a different library, you can have uh, hypotheses, again, a different library, and you can just mix all of these and you don't have to get stuck in that so-called box that that's a single kind of like... uh, tool creates. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to remember, um, I try to choose my tools so that they enable learning and growing. And especially people who are a little bit afraid of that, that kind of program orient, programming oriented learning already, uh, the, the limits of the box, even though they keep them safe in the beginning, they actually also imprison them in, in some way. But that's at least like my observation. And well, there's probably as many experiences there are people, but that's what I've been noticing when I watch people try to grow out of a robot framework. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and I feel like, I think that leap for testers, because I, I, I made that at one point in my journey, because I started more on the analysis and test side and then kind of left more into programming uh, in my career. I think the, the ensemble is a safe place to learn that kind of thing, right? Because to by myself open up a language I've never seen before with tools I've never seen before would feel pretty daunting, right? And so to do that as an ensemble is pretty great. And um, yeah, and it was just, I was at an open space uh, session the other day where I was, uh, someone loved Python and wanted to do a dojo in Python and we ended up opening up uh, Cucumber, but um, the ability to teach like, oh, here's the feature files and the connections to the step files and all those things. To teach that in an ensemble was way easier <laughs> than uh, I remember learning because I had to learn that by myself. Now that I remember, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so that 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 really go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like um, uh, some of the things. Again, I, I one of my favorite things to do as as well. In addition to all of the other things I do, is to teach either uh, kids or uh, general women over forty changing into IT. That's my the my kind of like audience, I really want to spend some time on, on helping some of those, those folks change careers into, into testing. And um, uh, when they start with automation, the, the IDE and the language, they're really kind of like putting those two together with the, all the error messages and, and everything that doesn't make sense. It's a really daunting experience. But when you have someone who kind of like, you know, looks at the error messages with you and they explain them to you. And when your debugger doesn't work, 
you just, you know, share your screen, you know, remote work is, is now what we do a lot. You just share your screen and the group learns to help one another when you have, a, you know, multiple people so that uh, the trainer can kind of just, you know, take steps back and just admire how some people are now helping others figure out how did we do this and you reiterate and, and you repeat. Uh, you get uh, over the hurdle that so many people stop on. And there's still a lot of people in the testing community that kind of say that, you know, they don't do, like I said earlier, I've, 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 I have, I've been on video saying this, that uh, the reason why I don't program is that there's so much other things to do that I don't really care about that. You know, there's, you know, there's plenty of people who seem to care about that programming stuff already. So you don't really need me there, whereas you need me on this, this you know, other exploratory stuff but then realizing that when i i breach that gap and kind of like you know i get over the the hurdle of, of learning programming or actually relearning because i've been doing that since whatever 12 13 i think i was when i when i started kind of i needed to just remember some of the stuff that i had rewritten out of my memory so uh, uh realizing that you know it's not away from me it's actually adding to that and that was kind of a, a big uh, deal but there's still a lot of people who are saying that uh, uh they don't want to program they that's not something that they want and i remember when i started ensemble programming first that was what i said like i'm only doing this because i want the programmers in my team to learn from one another and i might have to you know be in the room to hold the space for them but I'm going to hate it. I'm going to hate every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that enjoyable at first, but then kind of realizing that, hey, I'm not as lost as I thought, and I can just as well learn this and, and kind of like, you know, almost like language hunting type of thing, mm -hmm. like noticing bits and pieces and connections. And, and, and then I realized I was talking to this one psychologist guy when I was looking for a new job. He told me that the, the phenomenon that I was describing, kind of like the feelings, uh, it's called cognitive dissonance. Uh, when you're doing something uh, that you believe is, is bad, you will rewrite, you know, you either will stop doing it or you will rewrite your own ideas that it's not bad to do it. Mm -hmm. And I kept doing that for, you know, several uh, uh, weeks and weeks, you know, regularly going back to practice. And it was kind of funny noticing that, you know, I don't recognize myself. So I think this happens also a lot for people who are learning and, and kind of trying out new things. Yeah, and, and uh, the ensemble will, will help uh, bridge the gap for sure. Uh, <laughs> um, there was something that you mentioned earlier uh, around the mind maps, and, and I just kind of wrote a note and I'm curious about. So when in an ensemble and you're mind mapping uh, a, um, a, a scenario, uh, do you see a tendency to balance out uh, breadth versus depth on an idea? Because, you know, because I think we were talking about maybe we've explored very far over here and very little over here. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, are there any side effects that you see of doing the mind map? How do people change their decisions when in a group looking at a mind map about something that they're trying to accomplish? So at least we have more conversations about is it going to be depth or breadth? Uh -huh. uh, so there's a little bit more intention in that. So a lot of times people think they've already gone very deep and they haven't even scratched the surface. So there's this one bit in one application, like I usually, I use kind of uh, open source software to, to well, as test targets, they're uh, realistic, bigger systems, and they're too big usually to test in one go. And there are things that people don't know. I don't know them. I haven't created them. They, it's not, you know, it, they, they are not my programming projects. They're 
general systems, kind of like what we get uh, when we work as testers in, in teams that, you know, someone else uh, creates a lot of that stuff. You are kind of part of it, but maybe you don't know all of the bits and pieces. So we have this like one corner of the application where there's like a, there's like a list of things that, that uh, you can create. And there's four buttons under the list. And I ask people just to give names for the buttons and give names for all the features they see in the list. And they kind of like, they say they see the box, they see the four buttons, we're done. And I'm like, well, what can you do with the list? Well, we can't do anything with the list. Like they try clicking it and no, nothing happens. Like, okay, I can select it. So let's call it select. Uh, so what can you do after you've selected? But well, I can't do anything. And then they realize that there's hidden functionality, kind of like you have to click on a particular style and then you, you are able to edit the text. It's, it's by no means visible and it's not actually the most common pattern of, of getting it to edit. There's no right-click menu, which you would expect to see. But like when you kind of, you know, you, you uh, go through layer by layer and, and you find something of some kind, you can use that as a, as a source of other ideas of similar kind. And it actually, it has like a lot of uh, functionality, like maybe 50 things get listed. So it's, it's a tiny box. I just kind of like say to people, like we just stay on this tiny box. I only care about this box. Undo, redo is, is connected with that box. Like it's a treasure trove of problems in pretty much almost any program that you combine undo and redo with any of the functionality. So kind of like, like being more systematic and going really deeper. I think that's the more difficult thing for people. They, they see the kind of visible, easy landmark type of things. But then, then uh, naming things that are are somehow kind of under the surface—that's where you really need the guidance. Nice, nice. Yeah, I saw a uh, ensemble-ish type session where it, someone was asked to exploratory test something, and uh, several in the group were blown away when one person was uh, going a total security route, like trying to do like SQL injection or you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing too. So there's there's endless different ways to go and. What I love about the mind map and just drawing in <clears throat> excuse me, drawing in general with an ensemble is like Chris was saying, you could be going super deep in something that's not important or hitting a lot of breadth and not hitting something important that's deep. And seeing it on the screen, it makes it really uh, you know, visualized, makes it much more obvious to a group. Oh, here we are on the map. <laughs> Here's where we haven't been, or, you know, and uh, it, I just love that aspect of it. Uh, yeah, and the, another thing that you said earlier that uh, uh, triggered a question for me is um, uh, you said ensembling with kids and uh, things like that. And so that's something we've done quite a bit. Uh, you know, I've ensembled with my own kids and middle school students, and we've ensembled with college students. And, uh, you know, it's funny, it was a point Chris was saying earlier that doesn't happen with other styles of teaching is that in an ensemble, even the kids will teach themselves. So my daughter was teaching in an ensemble, my, uh, my boys, how to do something in the, in the code. And that was pretty fun to see. Uh, what have your experiences been like uh, teaching? What, what, what were the groups? You said kids and then something else? Uh, uh, kids and women over 40. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about that. You know, what are your experiences there? So it's, it's a little funny in the sense that uh, there's so much similarity of teaching these two beginner groups. Uh, for example, one of the things I do with those groups is I don't talk about drivers and navigators. I talk about hands and brains and, and voices mm. because they already understand that, you know, brains make decisions, hands, you know, follow the decisions made by brains mm. and voices. Sometimes they actually disturb the brain and they should be behaving. 
when their voices. So kind of like, you know, using these kind of concepts, uh, make it a little bit kind of easier to grasp maybe. Mm. Uh, but uh, the, the kids, well, I started with kids kind of because I have my own kids and especially with girls, when you want to teach them something uh, technical, they tend to need the, the social aspect of it. Like every girl needs to be doing it or some of them will tell that no girls do this. So I, I started with my daughter when she was four and I was teaching them programming so that, you know, all girls of her age have been learning programming since they were four. So I, I kind of, you know, hijacked her whole friend group. So that, that's a big part of the, the interest. But also just kind of, you know, going then to school and, and, and working with the, the teachers and, and sometimes kind of getting a, a group together. But I have had a limited time on, on the children's side. So I usually use it on, you know, groups where my own kids are, are involved or will benefit from. And then uh, on the adult side, I do that, uh, that kind of a side a lot more nowadays. Nice, nice. I really liked how you renamed or re-described driver navigator with different terms. Because I think the first time I tried to explain it to my kids, they just kind of looked at me dumbfounded and were like, get out of here, dad. And then they just started, you know, continuing <laughs> to work without listening yeah. to my advice about how to, how to ensemble. Um, yeah, so. I seem to be big on, on renaming things because I renamed uh, uh, more programming to ensemble programming. <laughs> and I did the same with the driver navigator now calling it hands and, and brains and voices. So, so again, like a lot of that comes from the fact that uh, when your energy goes into explaining to people that this is not, you know, mobbing gives you some kind of an idea. This is not that. And uh, it goes into explaining to people that you can trust me and I'm friendly. Mm -hmm. uh, when you could use a word that already says, trust me, I'm friendly, like I'd rather go that way. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of lucky two years ago uh, uh, when I started kind of deciding that I need to do something other than explain every single time. It's taking so much <laughs> of my life. I then used some time on asking people for options. And this ensemble programming term came from Denise Yu. Mm -hmm. uh, who proposed it uh, because obviously I go into the the underrepresented groups when I ask for the words that they're comfortable with mm -hmm. so it's women in testing and and uh, women in programming who got the the uh, uh, proposal uh, mm -hmm. uh, and then we we worked on it on Twitter after nice. um so I, I want to make sure that we hit this other topic that we had lined up, which was uh, product development in practice. So what did we want to say here uh, before we close out? Uh, so uh, on the product development in practice. So it's more on the, the side of, again, I've been a practitioner for 25 years. I've never been really a teacher. So even though we talk about teaching, uh, that's a very small part of all the things I do. And, and again, kind of like trying to get teams to work out this is kind of the big thing that I do. Nice, nice. Yeah, so what, what is that... Um... What does that look like for you? Yeah. So, you know, you've talked a little bit about how you do your, your teaching things on the side. So when you're actually in practice uh, in a workplace, uh, how does that translate for you? Uh, well, I know that you have a very different experience. You get to ensemble full time and, and, and your organization kind of like goes that direction. Uh, I have the benefit of some status in my organization. So when I say we get together for half a day or a full day and we do the real work in, in that style, mm -hmm. uh, people generally say yes to me nowadays. Uh, they didn't when I started. Uh, 
I needed to actually use all of my, my persuasion skills to get my first group to ever do ensemble programming with me. Like I, I eventually I learned that the thing that I needed to say is uh, I kind of need this personally. You seem to be liking me, so maybe you'll do me a favor. So kind of like a personal favor. And then they were okay sitting together for a couple of hours with me. And when that was kind of like a party, then they were okay with the next time. And I didn't need to beg as much as the first time but ever since that time it's, it's really gone into the side of uh, uh, when I suggest it people just kind of show up I don't also explain what we're going to be doing and it's just one of the things that we might be doing and now especially with the time of remote it is so natural to kind of like have a group and say you're explaining this maybe you can you know open your your screen and share your screen and maybe we can look at it together because like you can have hour long conversations of why isn't this working and then the error messages and they're somehow thinking you understand what they're doing versus kind of just going in uh, in that that experience and just sharing screen and, and working uh, for a while. So solving problems that way is, is a lot faster. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think kind of uh, this whole uh, ensembling, it's just a small part of all the things that we end up doing. Uh, for me, it's more on the side of uh, kind of thinking in terms of, of delivering. So I think my kind of specialty nowadays seems to be shortening the feedback loops, as in uh, we used to release twice a year. Now we use, release maybe uh, twice a month or twice a week or eventually, I hope, twice a day. Mm. And uh, whatever mechanism helps me grow people to that direction together with me, growing with them, of course, uh, that's what I what I try to figure out. That's nice, fantastic, and and that's what I love about um, ensemble in the workplace. And I think the uh, many of the origin stories because it's kind of had roots in many different places. Where it started in kind of like a learning teaching thing, but then it, it showed up in the workplace. Is it really fits that uh, that culture of learning and experimentation uh, that so many are seeking with in a. a DevOps or uh, just great innovative cultures in general where uh, you're learning as you're working, right? Because then you're talking about feedback loops, right? So if you're learning something six hours ago, three days ago, and now you're trying to apply it to work, it's somewhat out of context, it can still work, right? But what I love about it is that we learn together on the fly, as you're saying, like someone's having a problem, oh, share your screen and let's learn together as we're working on it, you know, whether it's you know, speeding up tests or speeding up feedback or speeding up delivery and those kind of things. And so, uh, yeah, I, I just love that because in, in my experience, there's no better way to truly learn something than while you're doing it, right? Like the context is already loaded in there and then uh, it, it'll stick with you much better than many other styles of learning. Uh, so I, I, but I also, I find that, you know, I've been analyzing my own thoughts a lot. Like, this is something that you needed to do, but I needed to do so that I could become a better exploratory tester. Mm. And I noticed that I'm thinking kind of like everything in terms of everything has a tail. So for me, there is no such thing as, as the learning is done in the moment. There's always a tail. Mm. Like uh, uh, when we finish a feature and we put it in production, I know that it's going to take a while before the customers actually use it. And it's going to take a while for, before we meet them so that we can encourage them to show how they're failing or succeeding with that feature. So there's always that tale of kind of like, you know, seeing it work in production in a particular way. Or there's a tale of kind of like growing from the moment of having a new product available to having 200 
different IoT devices out there and seeing how it really behaves with 200 devices in real production environment, which has some of the factors we, that we knew that we couldn't control while we were testing it uh, internally. So kind of like looking at the production time. So everything we think we're right now learning and everyone else is happy that they learned it now and you know it got resolved. For me, it was like, you know, it's a tail that I put on a list and then I have these like, you know, uh, a week later, I will come and think about it. A month later, I will come and think about it. And, and, and I have like, you know, different kinds of things. And nowadays, I, like, I can even like, you know, I see in front of me, I look at it and like, there's this tail, this tail has, you know, it's, it's that shape. Uh, kind of like, how often do I come back and revisit this? And I have these personal practices where, you know, I'm staring at the white wall, just so that I can, you know, see the tails that are kind of, you know, I hold them in my head. And sometimes I need to put them on a post-it wall or, you know, just see them on a, on a white empty board uh, so that, that I, can, I can manage them. So for me, uh, when I'm kind of thinking of myself as an exploratory tester, the learning never happens completely in the moment, but we try to understand what can happen with what kind of a, a time frame. Yeah, that's, uh, no, that's a really good point. I think, uh... Chris's, uh, that's Chris's uh, move, especially, right? You'll uh, set a reminder a month from now, check, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> I, I have uh, I have reminders that go all the way into 2050 uh, and beyond for myself. Of, uh, on, so I have a delay queue on a Kanban board and some are like, oh, come back to this a week later, three months from now, you know. And it's even stuff like, I'll have a better relationship with this person in six months. So bring this topic up in six months after we've had some time to just work together and um, all kinds of things. It, it's kind of like uh, in, in learning theory, there's this style of uh, interleafing. Um, and so, you know, when you're trying to learn something new, uh, you might, you know, if you, if you knew it on a flashcard, you'd wait a week and then bring it back. And if you still knew it in the flashcard, you'd wait, you know, months. And then if you got it wrong in months, then you'd put it back in the year today and then move it out to a week. Um, I find that, you know, I think very similarly, I find that like that same style of interleafing works really well, even with just thinking about a problem or, or a situation or um, a discussion you're going to have or whatever. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I like that. And also like I'm uh, kind of controlling the budget of how much of other people's time do I take for the things that I'm thinking. Like I have a lot of bandwidth for thinking, <laughs> it seems, compared to many others. Mm -hmm. So I have this idea of kind of like, you know, I, I, I like see this like a Kanban style work in progress box kind of like if I ask for some kind of an improvement I can't ask all the other improvements at the same time mm -hmm. and I need to show up for doing that one thing that I requested first mm -hmm. and, and a lot of my work is kind of built around the idea of, of saying something and seeing whether I need to follow that and and with what kind of a cycle yeah that's fantastic I, I operate very similarly so that's interesting that's awesome. <laughs> nice yeah and uh I think at one time we were ensembling and we wrote uh, a time, time, time. Uh... Oh yeah, I, I coined the, tom, the term uh, time bomb tests, which are basically uh, a test that asserts that the current date is above a certain date. Um, and so I, I especially like these for when uh, certificates are going to expire and, and maybe there's no clear way or uh, maybe you, you, you know, um, you just don't know uh, what a decision is going to be made on uh, open source framework, or you have a third party involved. You can always do this this time bomb test. So even if you're off the project, a test that says, 
uh, it's just a unit test that says, don't forget to look at the certificate expiration and make sure somebody took care of this. And it fails in the pipeline. And I know it sounds ridiculous. That's but, uh, awesome. Actually, that's exactly what I need. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. If you want to bring the entire team to a halt, right? Be like, yeah, oh, exactly. why is the pipeline down? <laughs> <laughs> it's emergency time. But um, yeah, so, so uh, conditional tests that test on the status of the outside world so it doesn't have to just be the date and time it could be any other specific set of scenarios but um, we've used that for uh, well it depends on really for us it's it's dependent on the the framework that we use but we've used it for kind of like people promising to fix a bug mm -hmm. so we have a test that notices the bug and mm -hmm. when there's a promise that we'll fix it this week it starts failing next week if you didn't keep your promise yeah. so for me it's been kind of like a shorter loop but but this whole kind of like certificate example really kind of like like very useful one i yeah. i need to use that one yeah. I, I have hard time with some of those stuff there's a there's an extrapolation of that actually which is uh if you could have uh, integration tests that that talk to your hr platform you could say if this person no longer works here don't forget to have the team watch this video right um so that's like another one where it's like if you offboard somebody and it's like months later and something needs to be done then you know so so you could you could tie into the hr platform you could tie into the date and time uh you know the position of the planetary alignment whatever <laughs> that's awesome yeah yeah that i think i've said it several times before but whenever i get messages from chris through the system i'm always like is this robot chris or real chris because uh, some some sort of script he's written at one time to message me or message the team on something yeah good stuff um well we are starting to hit the end of our time box but this has been uh fantastic uh, is there anything you'd like to share or plug before we close um, well, mostly the idea that uh, we can always continue the conversation on Twitter. So my DMs are open. I'm, I'm happy to have some conversations there. So so I'm trying to figure this out and I'm a social learner. So I'm usually considering successful when I have new friends that I can, I can learn with. And I would welcome that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I can attest to that. I've learned a lot from following you on social media. So uh, call action to uh, follow and learn and uh yeah to our audience thank you for listening uh please like and subscribe please feedback uh, on youtube twitter linkedin and more and if this uh really resonates with you and you know someone else that can uh, potentially help whether it's uh, uh teaching an ensemble exploratory testing and uh you know kind of applying some of these things in practice uh, yeah please share it with them uh but otherwise uh have a good one everybody and uh, talk to you later bye bye everyone